It's January 14th, and you may have noticed that after the the sermon, if you look in your bulletins, we're going to be singing a Christmas carol, Joy to the World. Some of you may be tired of Christmas music. Uh, Others may believe it's sin to sing such songs outside of December. Uh, Perhaps you think, well, you know, we are just a couple of weeks past Christmas And Mike has always been a few weeks behind, if not years, behind uh, the rest of the world. He's not even on Twitter, you know. In in all seriousness, I I wonder if you're uh, aware of the origin of this this Christmas carol, Joy to the World. Isaac Watts, the great Puritan hymn writer, based his hymn, Joy to the World, on Psalm 98, the psalm that we're going to be studying together this morning. So yes, uh, a few weeks after Christmas, we're going to sing what has been known as a traditional Christmas carol. And I hope, I hope that after uh, the, the sermon, I hope and trust that we will sing it with as much joy today, perhaps even a little bit more. Because after our study, we will, Lord willing, have a deeper knowledge of and appreciation for this portion of God's Word. If you haven't done so already, let me uh, invite you and encourage you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles or turn on your Bibles to Psalm 98. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, I believe you can find Psalm 98 on page 500. And if it's not on that page, somebody just let me know it's not on that page and tell me what page it's on. But I think it's on 500. Uh, While you're turning there, uh, let me just address what I'm sure is now a burning question for you. So, if... If um, we're going to sing Joy to the World, and if it's based on Psalm 98, are are we going to be thinking about Christmas this morning? Well, yes and and no. We're certainly going to be thinking about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, which Psalm 98 greatly anticipates. But let me me just read Psalm Psalm 98 for us now. And and you see, as, as I read and you follow along and read, see if you can tell why Psalm 98 is not exactly about Jesus first coming. Psalm 98. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with a lyre. With a lyre and the sound of melody. With trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar in all that fills it. The world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Well, what I suspect you've noticed about Psalm 98 is especially that it especially anticipates Jesus' second coming. As verse 9 says there, you see, he will come and judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. For the writers of the Old Testament, the coming of the Lord, or or the coming of the Lord's Messiah, was a, a single event from their perspective. They looked at it like this. The coming of the Lord was both a a day of salvation and a day of judgment. And as we can see from the New Testament 
this hope of the Old Testament writers actually had kind of a, a double fulfillment. So we see it like this from this angle. It was both a day of salvation and judgment. On the occasion of the first coming of God's Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, the hope of salvation would be fulfilled. And on the occasion of the second coming of Jesus Christ, often called his return, the final day of judgment would be fulfilled. And you may be wondering, then should we, should we stop singing joy to this world, joy to the world, uh, this song around Christmas time? Well, no, uh, of course we, we shouldn't stop singing this song around Christmas time. It's a glorious and joyful good news that the Lord has come and it's joyful and glorious good news that he will come again. See, his first coming assures us of his second coming. And the question that Psalm 98 asks us to consider is this. Do we, do we, you and I, do we anticipate and long for his coming with joy? Search, search your heart. Ask yourself, do I want Jesus to return? Would, would I clap my hands and sing for joy if he returned? Do I want Jesus to return? If not, why not? And if so, how does your answer to that question shape your today and tomorrow? As we study this psalm, Psalm 98, and, and really any portion of scripture for that matter, we must remember that it's part of a larger story. The story of the whole Bible. The true story of God's plan to save sinners through his son, Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible is about. And, and whatever portion of scripture we're studying, it's important to be mindful of what has taken place in the story, where you are in the story, and what lies ahead in the story. Psalm 98 is situated in the Bible's storyline in a wonderful place. God has created the world and all that is in it. He has saved and rescued the people of Israel, his people from slavery in Egypt. He's settled them in the land of Canaan, the land that he promised to give them. And all of this was a preview and a shadow of what was to come in the salvation and rescue that God would perform in his son, Jesus Christ. You see, Psalm 98, it looks back to God's great works of salvation for the people of Israel. And at the same time, it looks forward. It looks forward to the greatest and most important work of salvation that he would perform in his son, Jesus Christ. In this psalm, we can learn from the people of Israel. We, we can learn about how they looked back to God's great acts of salvation, about how they looked forward to what God would still yet do and how they sang for joy. As Christians, we can look back to the cross of Jesus Christ and see God's great salvation. And we can also look forward to Jesus Christ's return when he will come again, when the earth will receive her king. We're going to study Psalm 98 in two sections under two headings. Number one, see S-E-E, see, with your eyes, see his salvation. And number two, sing, sing of his return. And if you're taking notes this morning, those two simple points will form the outline of the rest of the sermon. See his salvation and sing of his return. Let's now turn and consider our first point, see his salvation. And as we do, uh, read Psalm 98, verses 1 to 3 again. A psalm. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. For he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Psalm 9-8, it opens with a very brief inscription. You can see it right there in the words, a psalm. 
Uh, the Psalms have classically been described as ancient Hebrew poetry, and that's not hard to see as we read this psalm and many others. It's clearly a joy-filled, exultant poem. The focus of these opening verses is on God making his salvation known. Three times, in three different ways, the psalmist exclaims that God has made his salvation known. Two of those three references you can see right there in verse 2. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nation. And then the third one comes there at the end of verse 3. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Before mentioning the, the public nature of this salvation, however, the psalmist encourages the people of Israel to rejoice in their strong God. Like Psalm 96, just, just a few psalms earlier, uh, the psalmist encourages the people of Israel to sing a new song. This new song may be recounting something new that the Lord had done for his people, so it makes it a little difficult to associate this psalm with a particular event in Israel's history. And still, because it's a rather uh, generic and, and, and open psalm, this would be a psalm that the people of Israel could sing when the Lord once again did something for his people, when he once again revealed his power and might for the good of his people. They could take it up in a fresh and new way. It's encouraging to think of what marvelous things this psalm might have been used to praise God for. You could just run right through the whole Old Testament and think of dozens of ways that the Lord's right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation. Uh, this psalm could have been used to, to praise God for his power displayed in the Exodus and bringing the people of Israel, his people, out of Egypt. Remember, God sent down ten plagues upon Pharaoh and the people of Egypt. He, he parted the Red Sea. He led the people of Israel across on dry land and protected them with a cloud at their backs. And once they were safely across, the Lord closed the waters of the Red Sea on Pharaoh's army. And Moses, Moses praised God for this marvelous act in Exodus 15, saying, I will sing to the Lord a new song, for he has triumphed gloriously. The Lord is my strength and my song. And he has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. You know, that wasn't all that the Lord did for his people. As the people of Israel wandered through the wilderness, the Lord defeated King Sion and King Og. The Lord turned the curses of Balaam into blessings for his people. At a time in which they were incredibly vulnerable, seemingly unprotected and open to attack, the Lord watched over his people and protected them. He did marvelous things for his people in the wilderness, not only through his powerful and protective right arm, but also in feeding them bread from heaven. He saved them from death by giving them life. It wouldn't be hard to imagine the people of Israel singing this song each time the Lord shout, showed his power and might to them in the wilderness. Let me ask you, what makes you sing to the Lord? What makes you praise God? Did you, did you praise God this past week? Did you give him thanks for his generosity to you? Did you thank God for, for delivering you from trouble? Think maybe even about the mundane things. Did you praise God for feeding you this past week? Uh, the absence of praise and thanks to God in our lives, I, I think may say something about our spiritual state. To be honest... The, the absence of praise might indicate the presence of pride, of self-reliance, of independence from God. Do we really feel and know our, our need of God? 
you know, this psalm might have been used to praise God for the exodus or his sustaining power in the wilderness, as I mentioned a moment ago. But what about when the people of Israel finally entered into Canaan? Didn't the Lord do marvelous things for his people then too? I mean, think, think about it. Didn't he reveal the power of his right arms when he brought the walls of Jericho down? Uh, didn't he reveal the power of his right arm in Joshua 10 when the Lord rained down large stones from heaven and made the sun stand still at Gibeon? The people of Israel praised God on those occasions too. If this is a psalm of David, which the Septuagint suggests, it's a, a Greek translation of the Old Testament, then it wouldn't be difficult to see that it could have been sung after many of David's victories, not, not least of which were his victories over Syria and the Philistines. Um, in the midst of his war with the Philistines, David said this about his God uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 22, verses 50 and 51. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing praises to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. Well, really, we could just keep working our way through the Old Testament and reflect on numerous times that the Lord did marvelous things for his people. And notice that God did them, as you see there in verse 2, in the sight of the nations. Right? The people of Egypt saw God's great salvation. The, the people of Canaan and all the nations around Israel saw God's salvation. The salvation that God worked for his people was a public event. And that's because God's great acts of salvation were to give hope to the people of the earth. God's acts of salvation for Israel were meant to give hope to the nations because they would see what kind of God he is. He's the kind of God who, who loves his people and saves his people from danger. He is a God whom you can entrust your life to. Rahab, a Gentile, knew this. That is why she proclaimed her, her faith in God as the armies of Israel began to march on Canaan. Rahab is, is mentioned in the great hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. She saw the salvation of the Lord and believed. God's mighty saving acts call us to believe in him and trust in him and to sing a new song to him. Israel and all the peoples of the earth are to engage in this worldwide worship of God. God always intended for salvation to reach beyond Israel. Anyone and everyone who comes to faith in God is to sing this new song. And while the people of Israel would sing this new song, looking back on the occasions in which God did new and wonderful things for them, ultimately this song, new song, looked forward to the worship of God's Son, Jesus Christ. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 42, would pick up on this new song theme. And he would connect it to God's servant, God's Messiah. And ultimately, we find the fullest and most joyful expression of this new song being sung to God's Messiah in the book of Revelation. We, we prayed some of those words earlier. So in Revelation chapter 5, uh, verses 9, 9 through 10, we're, we're given this picture and preview of the worship of heaven where Jesus Christ is exalted. And, and what we discover is that the people of heaven are singing a new song, praising Jesus for the salvation that he accomplished. And this new song is not just sung by Israelites, but by people from all over the world. Listen to what we, we read in Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them, made them, all of those people, you've made all of those people 
from every tongue, tribe, and nation, a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. See, it's not hard to see that this psalm, Psalm 98, while looking back on God's past great acts of salvation for the Old Testament people of God, it also anticipated with joy God's great acts of salvation in Jesus Christ. God's great acts of salvation in the Old Testament were but types and shadows of what would come in full in the New Testament. Jesus' death, just think of his death from the gospel accounts, right? Jesus' death was also a great act of salvation performed in the sight of the nations. In Acts chapter 4, the apostle Peter preached a powerful sermon where he made clear that the Gentiles, the nations, the kings of the earth, and the Jews all conspired together against God's Messiah, Jesus Christ. They crucified Jesus, and they thought that they had made a public spectacle of him. What, what, a, what a scene, they said to themselves, right? God's Messiah, this man who called himself the Christ. But what was really happening is that God was revealing his righteousness and making his salvation known in the sight of the nations, right there, through the cross. The Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 3, verse 1, he told the Galatians that it was before their very eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. And of course, he would go on to say that Christ saved sinners through the cross. When Jesus was crucified on the cross, instead of seeing failure and defeat, the earth, the earth should have seen the salvation of our God. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if the ancient people of God rejoiced at the salvation that God accomplished for them, then shouldn't we too? We should never move on from the cross. Our salvation should, should never get old. But let's be honest. Sometimes in our own hearts we, we grow kind of cold, don't we? Sometimes my heart is not as warm toward God as I want it to be. So d during spiritually dry times, what do we do? Um, we remember what God has done. We go back to his great acts of salvation. We, we, we see in our mind's eye his salvation. We remember and we keep remembering. We pray and we keep praying. We read God's word and we keep reading God's word. We fellowship with God's people and we keep fellowshipping with God's people. We gather for corporate worship and we keep gathering for corporate worship. In our dry and cold times, I don't think that we should kind of spiritually panic. Uh, think about when Peter was walking on the water with the Lord Jesus. When he kept his eyes on Christ, he was doing just fine. But when he started to look at the troubled waters around him, he started to sink. Our spiritual lives are, are not unlike that. So if, if you're feeling dry and cold toward the Lord right now, try not to panic about where you are spiritually. I would encourage you to keep casting your cares upon the Lord. Keep doing all of those things that I just mentioned. Keep reading and praying and fellowshipping and gathering for worship. Continue to avail yourself of God's means of grace. In other words, keep looking back to the cross and keep believing. Share your struggles with another brother or sister in Christ. Share with them about how your heart feels cold toward God. Honestly, I'm just not warm toward God. Say that and confess that if your heart feels that way. And ask your brothers and sisters to pray for you. Especially practice telling others about how God has saved you. Maybe recount your own testimony. 
Think often of your salvation, and, and in time, I trust your heart will be warmed again. It will be difficult for our hearts not to be filled with love when we reflect often on how God's heart is filled with love toward us. In the words of Thomas Manton, love is like an echo. It returns what it has received. Well, having considered and reflected on how we're to see God's salvation, let's turn now and consider our second point, sing of his return. And here we're very much thinking about the consummation of our salvation. Uh, let's read verses 4 to 9 again. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. While the first portion of Psalm 98 certainly began with an exhortation to sing, it's the predominating theme, uh, its predominating theme, the first section, was, was revealing the Lord's righteousness and seeing his salvation. The, the exhortation to sing and rejoice in the Lord's salvation in, in this portion of the psalm is really taken to a whole new level. Not only are those who love the Lord called to rejoice and sing and make glorious noise no less than six times, but multiple times the created order itself is also called to express its praise of God. The picture, as it so often is in the psalms, is one of the worldwide worship of God. Creature and creation are exhorted to worship the Lord God. Verses 4 to 7 mainly focus on the exhortation of, of human beings worshiping God. What is striking is that the psalmist doesn't limit the praise of God to the people of Israel. Now again, what we see there in verse 4 is that all the earth is to break forth into joyous song and sing praises. And what the psalmist is communicating here is that all the peoples of the earth are called to make a joyful noise to the Lord. As we heard from Revelation 5 a few moments ago, those from every tongue and tribe and language and people and nation were, were gathered around the throne of Jesus. Now just two chapters later in the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 7 verses 9 to 10, John would say this. John writes, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Even as we read the Psalms, which were specifically and uniquely used by the people of Israel in their worship, we can see that God's plan to save sinners from all over the world through his Son is being proclaimed. God was uniquely working through one nation so that the nations of the earth might be blessed and come to bless his name. You know, in the, in the past few days, many of us have been prompted to think about the nations a lot, the nations of the earth. And especially since we have a text before us which portrays the praise of the peoples of the earth, I think that it's important for us, for us, for you and me, for us here gathered now, it's important for us to remember the danger and unwieldy nature of our tongues. 
they are full of deadly poison. For as James chapter 3 verses 9 and 10 reminds us, with the tongue we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the image and likeness of God. From the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brothers and sisters, these things ought not be so. So, do not allow any cursing of those made in the image of God to be found in your mouth or on your lips. Your tongue, your tongue has been made to sing the praises of our God. And your tongue has been made to sing his praises in the company of brothers and sisters from every tongue, tribe, and nation. We must see something else in these verses too. Note that especially in verses 4 to 7 that the psalmist is almost reaching for anything and everything he can to encourage the worship of God. You see that, right? Voices, lyres, trumpets, and various horns are to be used in the praise of God. It's as if the psalmist is saying, look, anything you can find to use in the praise and worship of God, find it, grab a hold of it, and use it. Bring praise to God. Not only that, but the psalmist, he's calling for energetic worship. He calls for noise and shouts. He calls for us to break forth, not to hold back. Now, he's obviously not calling for disorder here. After all, he calls for the lyre to produce a sound of melody. What we're to gather from this picture is a diverse and unified, reverent and joyful, expressive and energetic, loud and bold praise and worship of God. The world needs to know that the Lord is king. And the world knows that in part through our worship of him. I've often been encouraged to hear the voices of the children of this congregation singing to the Lord. Uh, their joy, uh, their enthusiasm, it, it's contagious and it encourages me in my singing. Uh, your loud singing may encourage another brother or sister in Christ to sing loud too. Maybe to drown out that joyful noise that you're making, but maybe because they've just been encouraged to rejoice in the good news of Jesus Christ. If God has made your heart glad in Jesus Christ, then sing like you mean it. And, and don't keep your joy here in this building. Take it with you out into the world. Uh, let others know what God has done for you. Tell your friends and classmates and cousins, the good news of Jesus Christ that has filled you with joy. Give them the greatest reason to be joyful that there is by sharing Jesus Christ with them. Coming off the heels of verses 1 to 3, we're, we're called to see the salvation of the king. And perhaps the imagery of this worship is to be that of, of a victorious king. Thinking about a victorious king returning home to his exuberant realm that's rejoicing in all that he's done for them. And it's here that we must stop and consider the truth that God is both Lord and King. He's both Lord and King. And when we often think about God and refer to, to God, we'll, we'll call him Lord. And it's good and right that we do call him Lord. But, but I must confess that when I use the word Lord to refer to God, I, I kind of often forget the connotations of what that word means. The, the psalmist's reference to God as King has reminded me. I hope it has reminded you too. It reminds us, uh, that these references to God as Lord and King give us insight or reminds us of who He is. He's both Lord and King. 
And when thinking about what it means for God to be Lord, we cannot fail to remember that though this is a title for God, this is also a deeply personal name. Our God is not impersonal. And the names which he refers to himself as in Scripture are not meant to drive us away from him, to keep us at a distance from him, but to draw us near to him so that we might know him more. God is our Lord, which is to say that he's the sovereign ruler of all, of us, and of all of creation. There's no other universal Lord. There can be only one. If he is the sovereign Lord, then we are his servants. If he is our Lord and master, and he is, then we are his humble servants. The synonym for Lord you see there is king. that The psalmist uses in verse 6. It brings us out, doesn't it? Kings have subjects who serve them. And of course, there's only one king per realm. Who has ever heard of a monarchy with two or three kings? God is both Lord and king. He exercises his rule over his realm, which is clearly the whole earth as we see in this psalm. As he rules and reigns, he relates to his people and to his creation. God's very name, Lord, reveals to us that we are meant to know him and to relate to him. He is the king whom we are to serve with our whole hearts and lives and to serve with joy. We were made to sing his praises and worship him. That is what our lives were designed for. And when we shift focus from our Lord and king to ourselves, we inevitably challenge not just his name and all that it stands for, but his very place on the throne of the universe. We need to remember this when we're tempted to sin. When we are contemplating sinning against the Lord, then we are contemplating attempting to steal his throne. Our Lord and King will have no rivals. And so when we obey him as his servants and subjects, we affirm his kingship and lordship. Did you know that about your obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ? When you obey the Lord Jesus Christ, you are honoring and affirming his kingship and lordship. What a privilege we have in our daily lives in almost innumerable ways of exalting our God and King in this way. Verses 8 and 9, they pick up on a theme which an earlier psalm, I mentioned earlier, Psalm 96, recognized. The sea, the rivers, and the hills rejoice in the Lord. They all sing for joy together in a united chorus before the Lord. They proclaim His greatness. And this is, of course, it's poetic language, isn't it? Uh, It's personification, What the psalmist is doing is communicating to us that the existence and glory and beauty addresses the truth that God is real, that he rules and reigns. Even the created order proclaims that God is the Lord. They recognize him as their maker, which means we should too. We should learn from the hills. We should learn from the mountains. We should learn from the seas how they proclaim God, and we should proclaim God too as our maker. They rejoice at his coming. They rejoice not just at his coming, but you notice there, at his coming to judge the earth. See, the psalmist here, he's pointing forward to the last day when the creation, which has been marred by the fall, will be released from from bondage. Let's not forget that just after the fall, just after Adam and Eve sinned, the day when Adam and Eve disobeyed and sinned against God, eating the fruit that he forbid them to eat, That the Lord told Adam that as a consequence of his sin, that the ground would be cursed because of him. Thorns and thistles would now spring up from the ground. 
all because Adam endeavored to take God's crown. It would now be harder for the flower to grow. Because now the weed would would grow right alongside it and choke it out. See, Adam's transgression, it, it, it not only brought man low, but it made the ground even more difficult to sow. Every farmer knows this. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 8 that the creation is now in bondage because of Adam's sin. But it will be released when Jesus returns. Or, in the words of verse 9, when the Lord comes to judge the earth. Keeping one finger here, turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, verses 9 to 19 to 23. And if you're using one of the Bibles provided, I think that's on page 944. Romans chapter 8, uh, sorry, chapter 8, verses 19 to 23. That's page 944 of the Bibles provided. Uh, the Apostle Paul, in, in Romans 8, he describes um, the present situation of the creation and the future hope of the creation. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verses 19 to 23. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. But not only the creation, but we ourselves. Brothers and sisters, just pause there and ask yourself, do you, do you groan? Do you groan over the impact of sin in your own heart and life and in our world? I mean, some of us feel it in our old age. We, we feel the groaning and the impact of sin. We feel it in the loss of loved ones. We feel it when it's difficult to get out of bed. Lord, you're asking me to get up today and love people that are really difficult to love. I don't know that I could do it. Right? We, we, brothers and sisters, do you feel this? And do you know there's, there's coming a day where we're going to be released from it? Back there in verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we have this hope given to us. We know what's coming. We have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly. Are you waiting eagerly? Are you praying, come Lord Jesus? Are you waiting eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies? Do you hear and recognize the connection between Psalm 98 and Romans 8? When the people of God when we are revealed as sons and daughters in the final judgment, at that same time, the creation will be set free from its bondage to decay. It will be set free from the enslavement that it was chained in by Adam's first transgression. When will that happen? Well, it will happen when Jesus Christ, the second Adam, returns in judgment. And so in, in Psalm 98, we can see that this is why the sea roars. The rivers clap their hands and sing for joy. Do you see how the creation is teaching us how we ought to feel about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? 
When Jesus comes to judge the creator, will be set free. This is why Isaac Watts, in the third verse of Joy to the World, wrote, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. God's judgment, it does not just have implications for the physical earth. It also has implications for the peoples of the earth. Peoples who inhabit this earth. Go ahead and turn back to Psalm 98. Turn back to Psalm 98. I think that's page 500. Take a look there again, just again at verse 9, how it, how it ends. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Notice the certainty of that statement. He will judge. There is no doubt that his judgment is coming, that it will happen. And, and far I mean, just think about how the psalmist is trying to express this to us. Far from a foreboding thought. Right? There's not a terror at this coming. Far from a foreboding thought for the first singers of this song. This coming judgment was cause for great joy. What about you? What, what about you? Are you afraid of Jesus' judgment? Or does your heart cry, come Lord Jesus? How you answer that question will tell you a lot about your spiritual state before the Lord. What about you? Are you afraid of Jesus' judgment or do you cry for him to come? What will God's judgment consist of? We've, we've actually already heard of what it would consist of for the created order. Uh, that God will set his, free from cre- his creation free from its bondage decay to obtain the freedom of glory of the new heavens and the new earth. But what will, what will his coming uh, in judgment for the peoples of the earth. Well, Article 19 of our church's statement of faith, which we read earlier in the service, uh, and you can find in the bulletin, it summarizes well, I think, uh, w- what Jesus' judgment will consist of. What will Jesus' judgment mean for the peoples of the earth? Let me, let me just try to summarize what that statement says and expresses concerning the coming judgment of Jesus. Jesus' judgment includes five things. It includes return, resurrection, renewal, retribution and rest first it includes the return of jesus christ the risen ascended and reigning savior will come again to judge the living and the dead the lord jesus promised that he would come again and he always keeps his promises this judgment also includes the resurrection of the just and the unjust the saved and the unsaved the righteous and the wicked all of those who have died previous to christ's return will receive glorified bodies This judgment also includes renewal. All of those who are living at the time of Christ's return will also receive renewed and glorified bodies. This judgment also includes retribution. All those who have spent their lives rebelling against the Lord, attempting to steal and take his throne. All of those who have spent their lives rejecting King Jesus, refusing to come to him in faith, will receive the punishment that their sins deserve. This judgment will also include rest. All of those who have bowed the knee to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, all of those who have turned from their sins to Him who is coming again, they will receive the rest that God has promised us in the new heavens and the new earth. And we should not be mistaken. This is not an arbitrary judgment. No, it is a judgment that is carried out on the principles of perfect righteousness. 
Jesus will judge justly. Which should, of course, make us ask, how can anyone, how can anyone, how can we, how can we receive the rest of heaven? Aren't we all deserving of the retribution of hell? Deep down, we all know that while we've been made in the image of God, we've followed in the footsteps of Adam and Eve because we've all sinned. You know, sin isn't a word that we use a whole lot these days. These days, people will talk about uh, having made a mistake or, or an error. They will, that they had a, a kind of a momentary lapse in judgment. Sin is not like a minor infraction. It's, it's something against which God must respond to it. He, he's got to take action. Injustice has been done. He must do something. We, we tend to think of uh, these, these mistakes, these errors, as kind of one-off occurrences in our lives. You know, that's, that, that's not really who I am. But if we're really honest with ourselves, if we step back and kind of take a look at the tapestry of our lives, the picture of the whole, we can see that we haven't just lied once or twice, but many times throughout the course of our lives. It's to say nothing of the deep and, and dark thoughts that we've had in our hearts. We have known thoughts of anger and rage and lust in our hearts. And Jesus said that those thoughts, especially of anger and rage, are nothing less than murder. The thoughts of lust are nothing less than adultery. The things that we've thought and done are too commonplace and too egregious to be simple mistakes or kind of one-off occurrences. The Bible teaches us that sin is primarily directed at God. It's rejection, rebellion, refusal to obey. It's demanding, it's choosing to live our own way. And just like we thought about earlier, since God is king, and since nothing less than attempt to usurp God's throne and make it our own, that's what sin is. For our sin, we deserve to be condemned, punished in God's perfect righteousness without end. In and of ourselves, we are unrighteous, deserving of God's retribution in hell. But, but, there is, there is joy-filled good news that we need to hear and believe today. In sending his son to earth, God provided the righteousness that we desperately need. Jesus loved God. Jesus perfectly obeyed. He loved him with every thought, every word, every deed, every single minute of every single day. That's the kind of righteousness that God's law requires. And it's the kind of righteousness that we need. Our sins have accumulated an eternal punishment that we could not and cannot pay. Jesus was perfectly righteous, perfectly sinless, and yet... He gave up his life on the cross to pay our debt. On the cross, he laid his life down, taking the punishment that our sins deserve. And he gave his life up so that ours might be preserved. On the cross, there was, there was a most marvelous exchange. Jesus took our unrighteousness, our sin, our guilt, and our shame. And all of those who repent and put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ receive his righteousness as their life. The Apostle Peter puts it like this. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous 
for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. See, just as the apostle Peter said, three days after Jesus' death, God raised him from the dead and made him alive in the spirit. He did so that we could face the judgment that Psalm 98 speaks of, so that we could face this judgment without fear, so that we could face this judgment really with joy. You see, when Jesus returns to judge the world on principles of righteousness, our only hope is him, the one who knew no sin. So friend, if you're, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to urge you to, to come to him today and to give your life to him. Turn from your sin and put your faith in him. Believe that he lived the righteous life that you and I have failed to live. Believe that he died the death that you and I deserve to die. Believe that he was raised from the grave so on the last day you too might rise. Only those who put their faith in Christ will be able to sing on the last day, the day in which he returns to judge joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let the earth receive her king. So, friend, come to Jesus Christ today. Place your faith in him. Receive him as your king. And if you want to know more about what this means practically in your life, what it means to lean on Jesus and to trust him and follow him, come and find me at the door after the service. Talk with a friend or family member that you came here with this morning. There's nothing more important that you could think about that I'd rather talk with you about, that your friend or family member would rather talk to you about than this good news of Jesus Christ. We should conclude. By now, I hope you can see why Isaac Watts' hymn, Joy to the World, is, is sung at Christmas time and why it can be sung at the beginning of the year and even all throughout the year. You should sing it uh, in July or August just to remind yourself of this good news, that Jesus is coming back. The great salvation the people of Israel looked back on in Psalm 98 was but a type and shadow of the salvation that was to come in Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ came the first time, he died once and for all. And every Old Testament hope of salvation finds its fulfillment in him. And still with the ancient people of God, we too can rejoice at Christ's coming to judge the world in righteousness because we have received his righteousness by faith. And so God the Father gladly accepts us as his children because we've been united to his son. As Nancy Guthrie has said, when Christ comes again, all will be different Every knee will bow this time. It won't just be humanity celebrating his coming. The earth itself will rejoice. The curse will finally be gone for good so that all of creation will be set free from decay to worship Christ. People from every tribe and nation will gladly crown him as king. This is why there's so much joy in joy to the world. It anticipates joy when Christ comes the second time. When the kingdom he established at his first coming will be consummated as the reality that we will live in forever. Joy to the world indeed. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, help us to see your salvation in Jesus Christ. Help us to sing of your redemption that is coming in full when Jesus Christ returns. Give us, give us hearts that eagerly await his coming. Give us hearts that long for his coming and return. We pray and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.